This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. At midnight in the museum hall, the fossils gathered for a ball. There were no drums or saxophones, but just the clatter of their bones. A rolling, rattling, carefree circus of mammoth polkas and mazurkas, pterodactyls and brontosauruses sang ghostly prehistoric choruses. Amid the mastodonic wassail, I caught the eye of one small fossil. Cheer up, sad world, he said and winked. It's kind of fun to be extinct. That verse by Ogden Nash serves as my introduction to Chris Flynn's latest work, Mammoth. So, Chris, welcome back to 3CR. Hello, hello, hello. (laughs) Now, your narrator is, in fact, a mammoth, mammoth. So I'm keen to explore the inspiration for this. Right. It came from several different directions, really. Um, Let's start in 2007. There was a natural history auction in New York. They have these auctions every year. Anyone can attend and they have on sale dinosaur bones, uh, the fossils of megafauna. They'll have other weird ephemera like uh, the hand of an Egyptian mummy, um, perhaps some meteorites, some shark's teeth, all sorts of things. And anyone can buy them. And in 2007, there was one a famous auction um, with the skull of a Tyrannosaurus and the tusk of a mammoth for sale. And the Tyrannosaurus skull was fought over by celebrities um, Nicolas Cage and Leonardo DiCaprio, who tried to outbid each other for the skull. Nicolas Cage ended up winning it, um, $276,000 he paid for it. And they ended up having to give it back because it was stolen, of course, from Mongolia. Um, but the mammoth um, was one of the other exhibits. And I thought this was a very interesting idea that uh, all these creatures would be standing around who wouldn't normally share the same space. And it occurred to me that they might have some interesting stories to tell about their lives. Uh, and separate to that, I had been reading the letters of uh, President Thomas Jefferson back in 1800 and um, just after the American election he was writing people um, asking if they could secure him some mammoth bones and or even a live specimen because he thought they were still roaming out there in the wilderness and I thought it was strange that um, for hundreds of years we're still commodifying the bones of dead animals um, for usually quite masculine um, purposes to show how macho and uh, strong uh, they were these men one of the things I was reminded of fairly early on was uh, Rudyard Kipling and his just so stories because you have the narrator being the mammoth itself but also you then you give these uh, fossils an identity call me T-Batar dude or T-Bat or just T-91 and that's the Tyrannosaurus Batar a relative of the Tyrannosaurus Rex And they've adopted the persona and the language of the people that have unpacked them over the years. That's right. Yeah, depending upon when and where they were dug up, that gave them their voice. So the Tyrannosaurus was dug up in 1991, spent most of his time in a warehouse in Florida. So he speaks a little bit like uh, Keanu Reeves from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. The mammoth himself was dug up in 1800, so speaks a little bit like a, a well-educated, pompous old um, American gentleman. Um, the pterodactyls from Germany, so uh, from the 1940s. So she uh, has very um, distinct memories of 
the Nazis. Um, so yes, that, that uh, was a nice little tool to allow me to give each of the creatures a very um, definite, distinct voice. Now, the first section of the book actually deals with the discovery of our narrator, Mammut. Sections of it are actually true. He was dug up and exhibited by one Charles Peel. And this picks up on what you were referring to later about Jefferson, because it affords you a, a wonderful opportunity for some satirical comment. Nothing compares to this nation's willingness to promote patently false notions about itself in order to create a myth of American potency. Politics in this country has at its core an overcompensation for feelings of inadequacy. Couldn't be more prescient or true. No, that's true. That's And that's one of the ironic things about it um, that I discovered was the origins of the Republican Party in that time, in the, the late sort of 1700s, early 1800s, they still act the same way. They still talk about trying to make America great and they're still very boastful about um, how strong and powerful they are. They've never really seemed to have got over that. I think that the establishment of the American democracy, um, they, they really wanted to prove to the Europeans that this was a, a fabulous new country and an amazing new system. And the Europeans were pretty skeptical of it. So they had a chip on their shoulder ever since. But the way you've narrated it is almost then reminiscent of Jonathan Swift and the satire and the send up of a society as well. I'm a big fan of Jonathan Swift, actually. Um, and Gulliver's Travels is one of those books that people think of it as Gulliver being the giant in Lilliput, but that's only one part of the book. The book is it goes into a lot of other lands that he takes Gulliver to, and it's complete madness. That that mm. that book would probably never be published today because it's so bonkers. And, and also, then the animals have control in certain communities, but then this character that actually does the digging up, Charles Peel, is a rather interesting sort of individual. Yes, the portraitist and uh, naturalist Charles Peel, who painted the portraits of many sort of uh, esteemed gentlemen of the day, but also had a very bizarre natural history museum in Philadelphia, where he would put on show stuffed animals, creatures from all around the world. And um, he um, was very keen to get hold of the mammoth and put it on on show in Philadelphia, and people went nuts for it. There was an absolute mammoth fever that gripped the nation. Now, the first section, in many ways, is linked to an element of truth. You then have Mammut being taken overseas by Peel's son, Rembrandt, and his companion, Moses, who is Rembrandt's contemporary in age and intelligence, but for the fact that he's a slave. Um, and they exhibit Mammut to the intelligentsia over there, but this provides you with a wonderful opportunity to, in fact, look at some of the thinking. Back in the 18th century, eugenics and Arianism, the Comte de Buffon had suggested that a group of people from Senegal should be transported to Denmark. Once installed in the country of white-skinned, blue-eyed and golden-locked northerners, the Senegalese, to paraphrase the rest, would be rendered virtually indistinguishable from their bemused Danish hosts. And you go into, in many ways, the fallacy of our thinking. We think we're intelligent, but it is in fact let us down. The scientists at that time um, really helped to form 
modern thought in many ways. And they were very correct about some things and so very wrong about other things. They were digging up uh, bones at that time and discovering that the earth was a lot older than they initially thought. Um, you've got to remember these men of science were also men of faith. And it was a big challenge to them thinking that the earth was perhaps more than 6,000 years old. And Georges Cuvier, who's one of the fathers of modern paleontology and one of the few men who's got his name on the Eiffel Tower, um, he proposed the idea of an age of reptiles that predated an age of man. And there were huge creatures once roamed the earth and that some catastrophe had befallen them. And a lot of other scientists just couldn't get their head around this idea. They thought this was ridiculous. Um, But of course, he was correct about that. But on the other hand, there's this awkward belief that he has about the three races of man and the uh, Ethiopians, the Caucasians and the uh, Asiatics. And he had very um, views on that that are sort of shocking to read now. So it was really strange um, thinking of these men of science blundering their way through, getting some things right and getting other things terribly wrong, but having a huge influence on modern thought. This leads to Aryanism and the Nazis thinking, and we've even still got racism today. Yeah, people still will subscribe to those same views, and that's why it was a little bit shocking for me to be writing about Georges Cuvier, because I thought, huh, these are kind of views that are held still today by people in public life. And then we sort of find that Mamut gets abducted and taken to Ireland. What was your particular reason, if I don't know the answer already, for looking at the troubles in Ireland? Oh, well, well, you know me all too well. Um, Well, it was interesting to me that at the time when um, the mammoth bones were being unearthed in 1800 and there had just been the French Revolution and um, the new French democracy was established and um, Napoleon was in charge in France and at the same time, Um, The Irish had already had one rebellion in 1798 that failed and they were preparing for a second one, which was also a bit of a schmozzle. And um, I thought it was interesting that the mammoth bones would be floating around at exactly that same time. So I took him off to Ireland to let him observe what was going on there and the, um, the, the attempts to establish a revolution or um, a democracy there, which which ultimately failed and um, let let the mammoth be an observer on um, a little bit of uh, Irish history. We often think of the Irish rebellion, but we sometimes forget that there was another one that was uh, a disaster a few years afterwards. And then there wasn't one for a long, long time after that. But again, there's something that has endured the, the troubles and the foundation of that has influenced a whole society for so long in terms of their action and behaviour. Well, I mean, the rebellion was against the English who had, who were occupying Ireland really at the time and um, people are still rebelling against the English in Ireland today. The last section then is back in America. The bones are brought back. And we're on the trail of Lewis and Clark in America. There's, in fact, one tooth that uh, enables us to do this. But it sort of neatly rounds out the story then because uh, one of uh, Lewis's challenges was to find the evidence of fossils for Jefferson, who had instructed him to do so, which sort of links back to the, the beginning of the story. So you pick up on the hubris 
of America. But also there's this economic element because they're, the fossils are returned because they're trying to sell them to finance things. So there's this whole other argument that comes into being here. Well, fossils have been used throughout history, it would seem, um, as commodities to be traded and sold um, for financial gain. And I thought it was very um, interesting that the Lewis and Clark expedition, one of their remits was to, if they could, make a little side trip to secure some mammoth bones for Jefferson, who was really obsessed with them. In fact, Jefferson's first year in office, he was um, often the subject of censure by the other members of um, of, of Congress because he spent way too much time in the White House trying to assemble his mammoth bones rather than concentrating on policy. And um, yet again, it's another indication of um, the strange uh, dichotomy of uh, what it means to be a Republican president, where we have one currently who seems to spend an awful lot of time in the White House just sitting around watching television and eating burgers or whatever he does and not really concentrating on on, on policy. So that that rounds out the story. Now, there are uh, two epilogues in many ways. There's the human epilogue, which you provide. So you, in fact almost coming yourself here, mm-hmm. which goes over the auction. So that really was covered by what you said at the beginning of this interview. But then we end up with Mammut's final words or his epilogue, time, deep time. That is where we live. I used to count the years, tick them off on some cosmic calendar, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand. Now I understand that it doesn't really matter. Even when you think you're dead, you're not. We live forever. In some ways, it speaks to the perpetual interest in dinosaurs, but also then to the hubris of humankind, thinking we will endure forever. Right, and we're probably um, fairly challenged about that at the moment. Um, <laughs> the I love the idea of um, of us living in a moment in time. And the whilst we're in it, it seems um, there's such a struggle and so many disasters and so hard to get by. But um, it is a blip. We are just a blip, really. We haven't been around that long um, in the planet's history. And it's probably worth remembering that, I think, uh, sometimes. And it was nice for me to look at humans, uh, the evolution of man through the eyes of creatures who've been around much longer than we have I think they could be very good if we if we could hear them speak. They'd be very um, wise and interesting observers of our behaviour. They'd have some very interesting things to say. Well, Chris, I'm going to have to bring the interview to a close at this point in time. But the book is called Mammoth. It's by Chris Flynn, and it's a University of Queensland Press publication. Thank you it very is. much. Thank you very much, David. Thanks, David. Now, earlier in the year, I had planned to be away, so I had asked co-presenter Ewan Mitchell to step in. He did, so here he is. Today I'm talking with David Dufty, author of a new book titled Radio Girl, which is a biography about one of the most remarkable Australians you've probably never heard of, Violet McKenzie, known to many simply as Mrs Mack. 
David, in the preface to Radio Girl, you mentioned that when you were doing public presentations about your previous book, The Secret Codebreakers of Central Bureau, that you were, to quote, somewhat nonplussed to find that many in the audience were more interested in Mrs. Mack than in the codebreakers themselves. Why was this interest enough to motivate you to write an entire book on Mrs. Mack? Feedback from readers of my previous book and feedback in uh, talks when I'd go and give talks about it really confirmed what I already felt myself, which was that this is a really fascinating story about an amazing person. I, I guess I had already become quite interested in her myself, and so it was nice to get this confirmation from others that, yes, this is actually a story that's worth telling. What sort of barriers did Violet have to overcome to become Australia's first female electrical engineer? Being the first is a barrier in itself because nobody's done this before and there's an expectation that it won't be done. When Violet first turned up to enrol or uh, inquire about enrolling, she was told, look, that's fine, yes, you can enrol in engineering even though you're a woman. You just have to go and get an apprenticeship somewhere from a local firm. Now, of course, back in the start of the 20th century, good luck for a young woman finding a local engineering firm who's going to take on a, a woman as an apprentice. It just wasn't going to happen. Uh, he knew that, she knew that, but it was the decision was at arm's length in terms of we're not stopping you from enrolling, just go apply for apprenticeships. Uh, so what she did actually was she, she bought her brother's failing engineering firm. I go through why that was happening. It's an, inter- an amazing story in itself. But she bought it from her brother and then apprenticed herself to her own firm. And then she went back to the technical college and she said, okay, I meet the criteria, I have an apprenticeship, will you enrol me? And so that's how she got into the engineering course. She found a bit of resistance from some of the instructors, but overall her experience in study seems to have been a positive one. Uh, and then she uh, quickly became, got a reputation as a, as a top engineer, electrical engineer in Sydney. How did Violet become a pioneer in amateur radio communication? This was in the 1920s. That was the very earliest days of radio, which was called wireless back then. And she could see that this technology was going to be huge. And she was the first woman to apply for a, and get a, an amateur radio license. And she had a, a transmitter in her own house. And she became, uh, she was sending, they'd send each other Morse code messages on their transmitters. And she was a central part of, of the early amateur and professional uh, wireless community. When Violet sold her publication, The Wireless Weekly, and went on an overseas trip in 1924, how did she almost bring TV to Australia? So she had a, she and some friends founded a magazine called Wireless Weekly, which was a, a, a incredibly successful publication in Australia. It ended up becoming Electronics Australia. They sold that, and then presumably with the proceeds of that, she went on a trip to America, where she went to an exhibition in New York called the World Radio Fair, and there she got exposed to all sorts of new technologies that were coming in, including television. This was. Re- it wasn't really operational yet, but she saw, again, she saw what the future held. She came back to Australia and hoped to start some kind of television technology uh, enterprise in Australia, but it was really too early. The time just wasn't right. What was the Electrical Association for Women and why were the dangers of electricity such an issue in the 1920s and 30s? 
This was an Australian version of something that had started in the UK, the Electrical Association for Women, and it was a sort of a sister association. She started here in Australia to try and educate women of the benefits of electricity, which she saw as a technology that had the potential to liberate women. Before electricity and electrical appliances, most Australian women spent a lot of their time doing housework. They There was an entire day dedicated, for instance, to just washing clothes. So she wanted to educate women about these new appliances and these new technologies that were coming in and try and ex- convince them that they were not, that it was nothing to be afraid of. Why was Violet's all-electric cookery book so successful? And what did the profits enable her to finance? It was the first cookbook that was dedicated entirely to cooking with electricity. Not gas, not wood-fired stoves, just with electric stoves and electric ovens. It was immensely successful and it actually allowed her to create a lovely, expensive kitchen where she could actually bring people in and teach them how to cook with electrical appliances. Why was Morse code so crucial to defence communications in World War II? And why did Mrs Mack preemptively create the Women's Emergency Signalling Corps? Morse code was a key part of the communications infrastructure, uh, partly because in the early days, particularly of radio, the sound quality just was not high enough and the technology was not there to transmit things properly uh, by voice. So everything was transmitted with Morse code, which is essentially just beeps, you know, short and long beeps, which they call dits and dars, boop, 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 sort of thing. So every town had a Morse code operator for telegrams, every post office had a Morse code operator, and when war broke out, Violet felt that they were, Australia was going to run out of men, mostly men doing it, run out of the men who could do this because they were all going to go away to war. So she figured, well, this is going to cause a big problem. So she she set up a training school for women, to, a Morse code school for women in a wool shed in Sydney by the harbour. And she trained women, mostly very young women, in Morse code so that when the time came, they'd be ready and they could take over and fill the vacancies that were so desperately needed. And that's why she did it. And she turned out to be right. Why was Australia so resistant to admitting women into the defence forces in World War II when Britain had already done so prior to the war? You know, I'm not actually sure why Australia was so backward in this way. The women training with Violet were bringing in magazine articles about women in Britain who were joining the Navy and they couldn't understand why it couldn't happen here. So when Australia ran out of Morse code operators, as she knew they would, she contacted the government and said, look, I've trained all these women up to the standards required by the military. Do you want them? And, of course, the response initially was no. But she went, went down to Melbourne and she went, talked to the Navy board and she explained what she'd been doing with her training school. And they sent a man up to investigate and he was blown away. And he came back and he said, look, this is, what she's doing is amazing. We need to take her women. So she was really instrumental in breaking through that mindset that women should not be in the military, even though she never joined up herself. She was in her 50s by that stage, but she made this happen for the young women she was training. During the height of World War II, tell us about a typical day in Mrs Mack's training depot in Sydney in a converted wool shed. You'd climb up a long flight of old rickety stairs and emerge into a huge, dark, cavernous wool shed 
where there'd be tables with rows of people uh, with headphones on, uh, practicing Morse code, and you hear the clicking and the clickety clack of Morse code. Maybe over in a corner, there was somebody learning semaphore because she started teaching all of the military signals by the end of the war. There'd be men, there'd be women. There were men because the military found out they had nobody to even train them in. So her young women who she'd trained were training all the men. And so it'd just be a hive of activity. What did American servicemen think of Mrs. Mack's training facility, especially when they found out she and her husband financed it themselves? The Americans loved her and loved her training facility and raved about it, and they became a really integral part of the place. They were shocked when they found out that she wasn't being paid any money by the government to do it, that she was financing the whole thing herself. And in fact, uh, one American officer tried to raise money from his troops and they passed around a hat to give him money, but she refused it. She said, no, donate it to your own canteen. I don't want it. I'm doing this as a voluntary thing. How was Mrs Mack honoured after World War II? She was given an OBE, an Order of the British Empire, which was the British system we used to use until it was changed to, to an Order of Australia. So it was a very prestigious honour to be given. You mentioned towards the end of Radio Girl that mid-20th century achievements towards equality by Australian women like Mrs Mack have been undervalued or even ignored by prominent feminists like Germaine Greer and Anne Summers. Why do you think this has happened? The feminists of the 1970s did amazing and incredible things in terms of pushing society forward for equality, uh, for women's equality. Mrs Mack played a role much, much earlier, several decades earlier. She was also a feminist, but she had a different style and a different goals. She wanted to push women's rights in terms of being allowed to serve in the armed services and also trying to get women involved in typically male-dominated professions and careers like engineering and radio. So that was her focus. Thank you, David Dufty, for joining us today on Published or Not to tell us about your new book, Radio Girl, published by Alan and Unwin and now available in all good bookstores. Well, thanks, Ewan, and thanks, David. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. I look more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.